Welcome to another pint uh, with Shawnee B. We're coming to you from Chiswick in London. Harry Reichardt is a ceramic artist and has just been appointed the first ever visual artist in residence for the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. She's a very strong and funny lady. And I'm welcoming Carrie Reichardt to a pint with Shawnee B. We're about to have some wine, but it's chilling in the freezer, so you might hear that later. How are you? Yes, we're actually going to have some Prosecco, aren't Prosecco. we? It's a Prosecco. Some fizzy, it's a rainy, horrible day in London, even though it's supposed to be spring, but spring hasn't sprung yet. Now, the thing I want to talk about is, first of all, at the end of the podcast, you will see a link to Carrie's house and her house is probably one of the most original houses I've certainly ever seen in the whole world not to mind in London it is completely covered over three stories front and back with ceramic art so you're a ceramic artist explain to my listeners what ceramic art is and explain how this amazing house came about well I'm not sure if I can explain exactly what ceramic art is and I'm and also I'm a multimedia artist really I mean I do a lot of work in ceramics and mosaics but I also work in photography performance sculpture mixed media but I suppose I'm really well known for my house which is mosaic so about 21 years ago mm-hmm. I was working as a community artist doing mosaics my background's actually in sculpture I have a first class degree in sculpture but um, I couldn't really do what I was doing then because I was working with casting and resin and cancerous materials and I'd had a child and so mm. I guess I was looking for a different medium to work in and I just decided to make a mosaic in the right. garden and then as soon as I did it you know it was literally like a light goes did on you? yeah I was just like oh my so god so explain what mosaics and ceramics are for people who don't know they're glass and well, pottery I mean, and ceramics and... most people know what mosaics is yeah. it's broken pieces of either glass or ceramic put yeah. together going right back to Roman time that's not really what my mosaics are like because I come from a fine art background I tend to see my work really now as a collage I use tiles I print onto them cut them up and put them back together again and make murals using tiles right but the house is over a 21 year period so some of it is just made with little small shards of glass and some of it is tiled some of it is where i've actually made objects in ceramics and embedded them so really you're looking at me learning my craft over 21 years so the house is in a a leafy uh, suburb of Chiswick on a road with lots of other houses next to it it's an old I guess pre-war building you did one in your back garden and then what what made you say I know what I'm going to do I'm going to cover the whole house with this Well, a couple of things kind of came together. Like I said, I was doing community art. Mm. And whenever you do public art, community art, my experience is there's always some steering committee that's like you get paid more than you to oversee what you do. Yes. (laughs) And I got kind of fed up with being told what I couldn't do. You know, I was working on a huge public library in Harold Hill and we had a symbol to say stop burning the trees and we were told we couldn't use it because it might incite arson. You know, I don't know that many kids that look at a mosaic and go, you know what, let's set fire to something. And it was all about recycling. And so we'd worked with some kids and they'd come up with this logo that said, don't murder the planet, the planet bleeds too. And it had the world with a tear coming out of blood. They said, oh, you can't use that, that's depressing. And they made us change it to the environment is everywhere, which is meaningless. You know, they want these platitudes. You know, the trouble is with a lot of public art. Somebody's worried about their job, someone's worried about offending. And I mean, this is 21 years ago. so Worse now. A lot worse. And so at that time, I was getting fed up with those kind of um, censorship of what I was Mm. doing. And it was around Christmas time and I bought myself a book called Fantasy Art 
fantasy worlds, places around the world where people had mosaic their houses or created these huge environments. Yeah. And I was looking at it and it was really funny because my dad had said to me, oh, why don't you put some mosaics outside and, you know, say like mosaicist within to yeah. advertise what you do. And I suddenly thought, why don't I just mosaic the house? <laughs> and you certainly <laughs> did. I'm just going to mosaic my house. Yeah. And at the time, I used to joke, it would probably take me 20 years, and, and it, it did. did, you know. You have a funny story about the totem pole, which was one of the first bills we just had at the front. There's a, a three-story high. Is it a totem pole? Whatever. Well, it's a tiki it's totem a, it's pole. It's a tiki totem pole, I mean, but there was a little old lady well, story. Well, the thing is, well, the front of the house on the lower half, one is like an Alice in Wonderland, quintessential British scene with fly garret mushrooms and naughty mandrakes and things. And the other side, I, I was into tiki art and mm-hmm. all that Polynesian art. And so there's this giant tiki totem on the top. And Mary lives over the road. It was like my other mother, she has to be said. She was lovely. She just moved away, unfortunately. But she came over and she went, Oh, Carrie, what have you done? You've put a 12-inch penis on the front of your house. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Mary, that's your dirty mind. That's a tiki totem pole. She's like, oh, Carrie, it's got a scrotum and everything. And it's yeah. like, it does. It says, oh, come all you faithful at the top of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because years later I was in therapy and my therapist talked about my house and I said, would you like to see it? And she said, well, yeah, I would like to see your house. So I showed her a picture and she went, why do you have this great big phallic object on your house? And yeah. I was like, oh, you know what? I don't Last actually... thing you need to tell us. I'm not actually quite sure, but it, looking back, it's partly because all of that was partly designed by my partner at that time. Yeah, so yeah. I very consciously decided that we'd have loads of vaginas on the next <laughs> section up, which are all hidden. Now, <laughs> Mary accepting, at any point did some finger wagger from the council come well, tutting to no, your door? No, I mean, when I started doing it, I was absolutely obsessed that I would have this day in court. I mean, and I used to collect articles and followed various cases. Like, I don't know if you know about that guy who has a shark that goes into his roof. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'd followed that case and he'd won from the human rights. He went all the way to Europe and won that okay. right. And there was a woman in Twickenham who'd painted her house bright pink. And so I'd followed these cases yeah. and I knew the law. I know that the law states that I was allowed to put stone cladding, pebble dashing or tiling on the front of my house. The law doesn't say you can't mosaic your house in yeah. loads of bright colours because nobody yeah. does it. <laughs> what the law says is people can complain. If enough of them complain, the council can do something. Mm. But the reality is, is I think someone local tried to set up a petition and there wasn't enough names on there. There wasn't enough of an outrage. I truly believe it's partly because it was by increments. It was very slow. It's tiled. It's mosaic. If it was painted. Well, if it was painted, I think people would say, you know, that's terrible. Paint it over. But when you're talking about mosaics, you talk about having to physically remove it. It's so funny because each time I put it up, I go, oh, I can't believe I've got away with this naughty mandrake. I've got away with this. And on the back I started putting all power to the people and the revolution is now and it was about death row and I always kind of thought if they come after me now they'll have to say well I don't like that what you've said it would have to be about what I've actually the actual artistic thing is and not the fact that I've mosaic my house and it's like what if it started now if somebody like you was at year zero now that was going to take 20 years do you think just well, the no, sort of I know nannying a friend. that goes on. Well, I know someone up in um, Birmingham, my friend who's Caroline, who's started to mose her. Okay. Hers isn't really full of revolutionary text and weird things. But I personally think that most people like it. Yeah. We like art. Yeah. It's also like, to me, I mean, there's a, there's a lovely house I have an eye on in Dublin, which I have absolutely 
not got the funds to buy, but it's a very iconic house on the banks of the canal. And I walk by it every day. And I, I was I was saying to my girlfriend while we were walking by, you know, it'd be great if we could buy that and just pay Carrie like a hundred grand to come over and do it. Like with all the Irish writers that use the canal as motivation and inspiration, Patrick Cavanaugh and all these guys. And it would be a kind of an iconic gift to Ireland. Do you know that would Because I, I can't imagine someone buying this house after you're gone and well, going, Well, this is the problem I have now. You know, this is the problem. Who's going to buy well, it? It's I got my it, mother's name on the front and it's all about death row on the back. I mean, it, you, it, But you will find somebody who will get what it is all about and will pay him. You know, and anyone who says, okay, and we've stripped down all of that, it's, they must have ice in their hearts to do it because well, of the unfortunately of mosaics often do get removed so many of the most amazing ones the ones that were at a station in, yeah. uh, have been removed they're amazing ones that have been removed from all kinds of cities they don't mm. mosaics is universally loved yeah. you, know, you only have to look at Barcelona you only have to yeah. look at the places in the world where mad people like me have spent their life mosaicing things yeah. to know that these become the number one tourist attractions yeah, yeah. it's a universally popular art form but I don't think it's it doesn't have the reverence it should have in mm. this country for sure because it all falls into that decorative arts world but Gaudi would be an inspiration or not yeah, yeah, no, Gaudi is. If you look at what he was doing, he was so advanced. He yeah. was into recycling. He was into ergonomics. He was yeah. very advanced. Mm. And apparently he died stepping back to look at his piece. Yeah, he got run over. Yes, yeah. and they didn't know who he was. They thought he was a poor person, so he was left to die. Mm. And yet when the people found out, there were huge, massive demonstrations. And it's always the way. You make your money when you're dead mm. in art. Now, you also, um, let's get into this bit. You also are very open, outspoken, you believe in removing the stigma attached to mental illness. I mean, when I first uh, saw you present in, in Cork that time, you had a piece of art which was uh, extremely disturbing and shocking, and, and it was the cutting art. Tell me a little bit about your views on that, your childhood, how you developed, because I know that you feel a lot of the way you were brought up has led to you being in this position right now, and you're not afraid to talk about it. Well... When I look back now, I realise that I used art as a form of therapy. You know, my way of dealing with emotions, to deal with the world, to deal with injustice is through an artistic, creative response. Mm. And in times in my life when I haven't been involved in a creative process, I've been extremely unwell. You know, I have suffered from mental illness and mm. problems a large part of my life. Most of my life has been happy accidents, you know, mm. I've just ended up on something and done it. What but was I, your background? Where were you born and brought up? And I was born in Chiswick. Oh, I moved okay. into this house when I was 16. My dad right. had it, you know, this is my parents' first house. Right. And uh, my dad was a landlord, so he has all these houses that are very Rigsby-ish. I've lived in every room in this house as a bedsit, moved here when I was 16 and did yeah. a course called FIDAS, which was Films, English Drama and Art Studies, which right. was very bohemian, fantastic. I went from being bored to death at secondary school to suddenly being in an environment of like 12 kids. So we were taken to the Theatre of Cruelty to study Arto. We were taken to wow. see quite shocking plays and introduced to all these different concepts and things. So and when you were little, were you artistic? Was it a happy listen, life? I am not. I, the, the joke in my family, like my brother laughs about the fact that I had a first class degree because I couldn't draw and I couldn't <laughs> paint. I was a kid that made things. Mm. I was that kid that followed Blue Peter and sat there for hours and make what Corn was on there. Cornflakes boxes and all that. Yeah, I was a 
when I look back, I can tell that I really was someone that did tapestries. I did sewing. Mm. I'm always busy. But I realise now that I didn't have confidence. I wanted to draw and I wanted to paint, but I couldn't produce the work that was realistic in my own mind. And mm. so I would use photocopies. I would find ways to create things without actually having to draw them. I think a large part of my life is I can tell how insecure I was about things, but how desperately I needed to actually produce things and yeah. make things and create things for my own sanity. Do you look back on your early childhood as a happy time or a sad time? Or According to my mother, I was very happy as a child, and I'm sure I was, and I look at my youngest and I see, because she's on the autistic spectrum, and I can see that maybe I was... Similar. on that spectrum and left on my own devices left making things I was a happy child I think most things went wrong for me in puberty most right. things went wrong for me in trying to fit into secondary school most things it's hard to pinpoint where yeah. these things happened I have a very strange father and we all kind of left home when we were young to kind of get away from him to a degree but right. It's hard to know what started first. Did I take drugs because I was unhappy or was yeah. I unhappy because I took drugs? Now, when I look back, and I've been in therapy for a long time, I found social situations difficult. And so, mm. like so many people I know, my way to deal with that was to very quickly go to drinking and go to drugs. Did you feel different from everybody? Yeah. Yes, yeah, a lot of people who I interview on this say that. I'm the youngest of four. And I've always felt like the black sheep of my yeah, family. I my nickname when I was growing up was Hey But the Parrot because whenever anyone was talking in my family, I'd be going, Hey, hey, hey but to try and and they'd call me Hey But the Parrot. You're trying I, to get a word in. Yeah. I think a lot of it is more insecurity than feeling different. As a child you get defences. Yeah. And those defences, my defences is probably that kind of anarchic I don't care. Yeah. Don't want to be there anyway. So what age were you when you started dabbling or getting into drugs or what memories of that like oh god i think the sooner they went to my first parties when really? i was 15 right. you know it would just be drinking a bottle of martini as quick as you can so when you finished your schooling you went to college well my first degree was actually film i only lasted a term i dropped out of that and became a tax collector for well, a year <laughs> the irony uh, uh, yeah i know <laughs> you have to learn about what you don't yeah. and then um i saved up money and i went traveling i went to india I went to Nepal. I travelled around America for six months. What age were you at this stage? That was when I was 18, 19. And then I came I came back and decided to go back to college. And I went and did an art foundation. And at that point, I wanted to do theatre design. But just before I went to do my foundation, I was sexually assaulted on the way home late at night. I had a nervous breakdown. Mm. I, I was attacked in the summer. I started an art foundation. And it was really funny because at the end of this course, when they look at your portfolio... I'd managed to turn every single art exercise into a way of dealing with being attacked. Yeah. I can always remember we had to design a poster for um, children's playground. Mine just had scaffolding with ominous men hiding in the back. It's so weird when I look at it, because at the time I wasn't conscious of yeah. this. The end of year, I'd made a two-minute film called Ode to Love, which really was intercutting those kind of... Do you remember those snuff movies at the yeah, time? Yeah. Jonah Killer and all of those. I was intercutting that with pictures of women. And without knowing it, I'd engaged in this whole year of art therapy, trying to process that. To segue away, just while we're on this subject, the whole Me Too thing that's happening now, where do you sit on that? It's a difficult one, because as much as I recognise what's happened historically... And 
I think we're in danger of creating a world where nobody knows how to even be. I read somewhere that in universities in America, you sign contracts where you're not allowed, you know, if you have sex when you're drunk now, it could be held up in a court of law that there was no consent. Well, no one I know would ever have sex no. in the beginning unless they yeah. were drunk. You know, I think we're going into a And you have all the personal pronouns world. thing, 31 different types. No, I don't, I will see, I don't agree with yeah, that. Yeah. I can't. Yeah, I know, same. There's a realisation and that people want to do something about it and I'm glad, but it's this thing where like, okay, Chuck Close or all these other, where these artists yeah. and they want to remove their work. Well, you're going to have to remove all of Picasso's work. Yeah. You're going to have yeah. to remove Egon Schiller's work. You're yeah. going to have to remove most people's work if yeah. you start judging them by these things. When you focus on these famous people and they become these big stories and everybody talks about it, what we need to look at is more institutionalised things where this happens. You know, let's focus on the church. Let's focus on our care homes. There is terrible things happening on a huge scale, but I Mm. think the media likes to pick up on one thing and hang them out to dry Mm. and it becomes that. But one of the big themes in your work is, you know, for want of a better word, sauciness and females using sexuality in a way that would would be very almost working man's club sort of well, stereotype, work, but with a very biting well, I angle think my, to it. My work definitely pushes boundaries. Yeah. And, and my work has to come from someone of my age. The funny yeah. thing is, is I think a lot of things are generational. You yeah. have a generation now who go, we're not having this. We yeah. want it our way. They're very much leading an agenda. You know, this agenda where no one can be offended. It's a dangerous place to go it down is, because yeah. who's to say who's offended? You know, my work's offensive to huge amounts of people, yeah. but I defend my right to do it. Yeah. Lots of people like my work and lots of people don't. And even now, you know, I'm getting accused of a cultural appropriation and getting told that somebody would be offended. They're not offended, but somebody else will be offended. Mm. And I think that well, if you being down, offended about artwork is the least of our problems, yeah. given the state of the country. It's a divisive. But it's also dangerous. Yes. Because we have to, you know, all revolutions sound with start with the sound of one voice usually like your point that you made about your generation if you think about it and we're similar generation if you think about today you know artists need to start coming out and taking the piss out of all these pronouns that are gathering like okay i know it can be oh my rights my rights as a human being i want you to call me they or blip or whatever they're whatever whatever there's 31 of them apparently in america now and apparently if you don't use them uh, then you're in, I think in Canada, Canada. It's, it's illegal. 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 I think in Canada, you you, I think you're allowed to still call people the N word because that's not a criminal offence. But you yeah. have to refer to someone by their correct yeah. noun. And we need to have, you know, in Jordan Peterson, the, the sort of Canadian, I don't know, intellectual who keeps getting thrown the word supremacist at him just because he offends who, what's his people. Name? Jordan Peterson. He was the guy who got caught. He, he was on the television recently talking about gender equality with a woman on Channel 4 who was just acting like a complete fuckwit as, as far as I'm concerned. I don't agree with everything he says, but I agree with the fact that we need people like this who are trying to find truth. And if you're trying to find truth, you're going to tread on a few toes. You're going to say things that people go, oh, get all offended with. If we have no comedian in the room taking the pit, we know court jester. You're a court jester. You putting a woman with tits on a playing card and, you know, something provocative on it. Okay, so all of that disappears. Well, no, and well the then is, we're in. We're in. I'm an Big artist. Brother. I'm not a politician. Yeah, I'm here to make commentary, to express things, and the same way you have comedians. Mm. I do believe if you're not allowed to express things, 
can get really nasty. I think, yeah. you know, with political correctness the way that it is, yeah. you end up with people in the ballot votes yeah. going and voting for people like Trump. Well, I, I, and yes, anyone I'm... who knows my politics knows the type of person I am. Mm. But I'm going to defend my right to make the artwork that I want to Absolutely. work. Absolutely. There's also the line, though, that says, you don't call people nigger. You know, you don't go around beating up Packies and Leicester. You don't you treat people with disrespect, no matter what colour, creed or religion they are. You don't throw acid in Muslim people's faces just because they're wearing a hijab. There's certain laws of human decency that we need to keep and know when it's being fun and when it's not fun. I often make the thing, you know, if people call me Mick or Paddy, I'm cool with that. But then somebody might call me Mick and Paddy in a bar fight and I'm not cool with it. And it, it, you know when you're offending. In the same way with the Me Too thing, people know when... A man knows, in my view, when he's overstepping them. If a woman says, I don't want to have sex with you, and a man continues to try and have sex with that woman, you know in your heart when you're overstepping them. You know when you're being aggressive and racist and horrible to some to another human being. You know it. And it's usually clear. But then someone jumps in and goes, oh, I haven't read your book, but I think it's offensive. There's there's all of this going on. To segue this into um, the, the art I mentioned earlier about the, the cutting piece. That was after my degree. Shows you how old I am. So there's a, there's a jump in here after you did your film stuff. Did, you went I, up I to went to Leeds, Leeds and, and I did a degree in sculpture. You know, I was so influenced by feminist art because it was a big explosion of it in the late 80s. I started yeah. my degree in 89. So I was on the heels of all of that kind of uh, wave of feminism. A lot of my work was all about the body. It was all about women's position in the world. And I and it was all much to do with body casting. So I did all this work. I did my degree. I liked making work, but I didn't really like the process of being at art college. And I left and I said, I'll never do art again. I don't want to do it. I literally worked in Safeways for six months, saved up money, and I went to Israel, and I spent six months in Israel and Egypt, and then I came back and I worked. What, kibbutz or something? Yeah, right. all that kibbutz, Moshav, mm. travelling. And then I came back, and then I saved up again, and then I went to Costa Rica, and I travelled from Costa Rica to Mexico City and back again, which was just amazing. Yeah. But, you know, unfortunately, I discovered cocaine big time when I was in Central you America. You do out there. Yeah, it's, yeah it's I mean, plentiful. great when I was there. It was terrible when I came back. Yeah. It was another case where I kind of had a breakdown. I became someone who worked with adults with learning disabilities. So for nearly two years, I was working in care work, which by the end of it, I'd had a complete nervous breakdown. I couldn't cope. I was, you know... It must be a really hard job to do that because it just, people it are just, dying. and they're It's not that they're dying. It's just... There's a limit to care work. Some people are nice carers, some aren't. You, yeah. you know that, and it's quite a heavy burden. And I was promoted really quickly. I became the registered state manager of a house, so I was. it was my job to resettle two people out of long-term institutions. I was the manager. I'd only yeah. had eight months training. I worked with people who had extreme epilepsy. Well, they probably thought I was a really good worker because I was on speed all the time. And I was like very efficient. <laughs> and um, when I put my mind to things, I'm good at most mm. things I do. So, but basically, but would I, you say you have empathy? 
Yes, yeah, I, I have a lot a, of empathy yeah. because I... Behind you're very strong like exterior. There's a I have very... a lot of empathy because I've suffered a lot with yeah. my own trauma and recognise that. But when I had been in Belize, I'd met a squaddy who I'd fallen in love with who came back and bought himself out the army and came to live with me. And it was a time of ecstasy. We were yeah. like partying a lot too much. And he walked out of my life and I had a complete nervous breakdown just literally like everything just went in that moment in time and that was when I became a real chronic self-harmer so what age are you now 23 no I was 24 24 24, and it was just a brief moment in my life and I don't even know how I started I don't know where it came Mm. from my addictions and my way of dealing things will find a vehicle if if it's not feeding myself food I'll be drunk or I'll be speed or or it managed to turn itself into self-harming and so for this year of my life I was doing self-harming and also you have to remember this is 94 this is way before anyone talked about it way before it was ever acknowledged as a thing I had no context to it is it mainly women who self-harm than men or is it women usually take anger out on themselves whereas men will tend to go beat someone up I think (laughs) you know I think if it's a generalization I know yeah I just don't I don't I'm not conscious of hearing a lot of men women tend to process things Mm. as their anger is turned inward At the time I was doing it, I kind of decided to make a piece of art about it. I had a friend who was a photographer and I was like, could you come around and take some photos for me? And he was like, yeah, carry on, come round. And he came round and I always remember I went in the bathroom and I just cut myself up and I came out and he was like, oh my God, I can't do this, I've got to leave. And I was like, no, please, this is important to me. I need Mm. to document this. And he was like, no, no, this is too fucked up, I'm leaving. And so I was like trying to hold a camera and take pictures. And he kind of went, oh, for God's sake, move over. And then he kind of went into a world where he was... Documenting Well, something. yeah, but he'd abstract what was happening. And he was like literally looking for nice shots. And he'd yeah. gone into a photographer and he took... He's been professional. These, yeah, and he took all these <laughs> photos. And then we made these beautiful boxes. They are beautiful, And yeah. he had them inlaid. He helped me, my friend Nigel, and though he had glass, and I'd written and I'd spoken to lots of women who'd self-harmed and I'd got reasons for them why they did it. Yeah. And I had it all beautifully etched yeah. onto glass and presented it. And I also had this six foot by four foot aluminium sheet printed with a photo of where my I'd cut my wrist so yeah. it was a real close up of these little blue stitches in my wrist and yeah. I don't know if you've ever cut your wrists no, it all bruises no. it all goes yeah. bruised and so I had this intense photo and it was called stitched up good and proper and the thing is is that for some people it's like you're nuts but for me making art kind of somehow took me out of myself and it gave it a kind of a different focus it enabled me to find something out of this trauma that was kind of good yeah. because I was explaining it I was sharing it and so I made this whole body of work it was only ever exhibited three times but there was an issue with the photo lab right yeah I mean because I was having all this stuff made at boots and I decided to make a dinner service where <laughs> at the time you could have placemats and cup mats and you could have right. it all printed up and so I had them printed all up and then I it sounds really naff now, but I wrote pain in my arm, cast my own arm, and then made it into looking like a Sunday dinner. And my friend, who was the photographer, we set it up at his house. We laid yeah. down all the china. We had all this. And it was supposed to be like this fake Christmas. Yeah. But when I went into Boots, they said, we can't do your work anymore. 
and uh, I got a phone call from the local police saying they wanted to know who was in the photos and I was like well it's me and they were like okay well maybe you need to see a doctor but okay we won't investigate any further and Boots banned me from ever using their photographic I mean the the, the shock of it even when you look at them first you know it's real I mean when I saw it first I was going that's actually not someone with tomato ketchup on their hand that's actually a real thing and it is deeply shocking but but strangely I mean I can understand why the photographer did what he did which sounds terrible but I mean I, I guess also the fact if he gets it done quickly that you can patch yourself up the thing is, is the one thing he, I, I tried to get him because I had this idea that I wanted to get myself in a wedding dress and hang myself from a tree oh in Richmond Park because I wanted to do a whole series of suicidal shots oh. of women in these classic suicidal yeah. poses but he was like no way Carrie it could I'm go done. wrong I'm going to get right. that's where it draw a line but if I had have done it imagine it now if you'd have taken those photos the one thing I know about my work is it's of the moment it's advanced there's a lot of artists that deal with blood and deal with things like frank b and you know but the work that i've made at any time that i've made it i I always look back and think well no i might have seemed like i was out there but now there's a whole kind of art theory you could attach to this Mm. stuff my work is authentic yes it doesn't matter if it's about self-harm or if i'm doing photography Mm. or if i'm making mosaics the thing Mm. about my work is it has an authentic voice to it because it really is about me trying to express something over all the years that i've been working i've just become very skilled now i can hold my head up high and go yeah i've got craft skills i know how to print you've done 10,000 hours yeah i've done 10,000 hours in printing in ceramics in mosaics in sculpture so you have this um very very challenging work partly therapeutic in your way of dealing with what's going on inside your life how did you move away from cutting does it seem anathema to you now that you were doing that or, or, or? well god yeah it's really weird now when i see people who self-harm or mm. like when my daughter was growing up it almost seems like rites of passage you know people yeah. put it on instagram and it's it's taken on a very different meaning and stuff and i can't imagine it i can't imagine why yeah. i would ever have done that i mean it really was just a period of my life I was in a show called Disturbance Value and there was another artist on show who had a fish, rotten fish, stinking out of the gallery. Did you have to replace it every few days? No, it was just there stinking. (laughs) I met him, we went out on a date and um, I agreed to marry him because I was supposed to go into a place called The Castle for six months, heavy therapeutic you know, I was supposed to go into a hospital for six months because I was diagnosed with extreme personality disorder. I was supposed to go in, but I met this guy, decided we would get married, and two weeks later I was married at Hackney Registrar, and a month later I was pregnant with my eldest daughter, Poppy. And I know it all seems nuts, and when I say it as a story, it is nuts, but in a way it wasn't, because us having my daughter was a saving thing for Mm. both me and for James. I may be quite irresponsible when it comes to myself, but when I had a child, I suddenly had to sort things out. After my daughter was born, I started to do mosaics. And once I got introduced to craft, I could see myself that rather than getting tied up with why I was doing things, because I was always very analytical with my art. It used to drive me nuts. Why am I doing? What does it mean? Suddenly I had a process. I could Mm. have an idea, but the process would take weeks. It would take months, and I'd get lost in that process. People, when they talk about craft, will always talk about getting into the zone. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a meditative place. I even do with these. It's a place where you just get lost in colour and design, and Mm. I've realised how compulsive-obsessive I am. You know, Mm. I'll spend hours and hours and hours, and lost in that process is when I feel most happy 
I realised not only how good mosaics was for me, but I started to teach mosaics. Ten years of my life where I just taught mosaics right. all the time. I taught it in orphanages, I taught yeah. it in schools, I taught it in the local mental hospital. I could see how amazing this process was and so so one of the amazing things you did was uh, i think it was around 2000 you went to romania and I, I was growing up in ireland at this time and the romanian baby situation was i guess what it was ceausescu and it was kids were basically just put in beds and they grew up in the cot and they their limbs were deformed and and your daughter poppy was was with you on, on, on she went on one of the trips yeah. we went three times it was my friend karen from university yeah. and her brother mark it was kind of mad when we think back on it yeah. I and mean, we went with world emergency relief which is a right-wing christian organization yeah. they took us there and we went back to the same orphanages over a period of time we got them to paint and we got them to mosaic and you called it when we spoke last transformational and I remember you saying that the joy of just seeing a child experiencing colours and paint. and These children had been in classrooms just putting dots in a book. Yeah. You know, they were perceived as less than human. And when we arrived, they wanted us to work only with the good kids. They said, you can just work with our good kids. And we said, we work with all of them yeah, or yeah, none of them. Absolutely right. They'd never worked with colour. They'd never seen that you take yellow, you take red and you make orange their faces light up and the joy of seeing all of that but when people are allowed to be creative and when they create things they're allowed to show their potential and then the people around them their perceptions changed over the time that we were there the mayor would come or the tv would come and they would film these children and it went on the local news it had a kind of a ripple effect but it was traumatising. On the last day when we would leave, we'd have a party and we played music and all the kids came and they would be dancing. And then when we were leaving, a lot of them were rocking, which is something that people do when they're deprived of human yeah. contact. Yeah. But they'd start hitting their heads and we were very traumatised by the experience. And you look back and you think, was it a good thing or a bad thing? For some, it was a good experience. For some, it may have been a traumatic experience. Mm. It's hard to know. I mean, it's a shocking uh, slight on a society that, because we had it in Ireland with Magdalene laundries, there's been stuff where women, just the sheer, the sheer shame of a, a woman getting pregnant in a family, to the extent where we will cast her out of our family, put her in a home with nuns where she will have the child, where it gets taken off or sometimes killed, in one of the most religious. Catholic nations in the world and the hypocrisy we, we were not even going to go near the priests diddling with tens of thousands of boys mainly and you look back on it and you go how the hell and this is my grandparents and parents it's not like the famine you know six generations ago or it's not like the dark ages when druids roamed the, the land and you, you know you see this stuff in your life at the time you go and do something about it as you did or you scratch your head as I probably did going what the hell is the country allowing that for and we lived through it and then you look back and you go that is fucked up you know the thing is is these things are allowed because everyday people's lives are really hard mm. if you look in Romania how harsh their conditions were how awful it was yeah. if you can't feed your kids you are not going to care about somebody yeah. else's kids and so in a way you have to make them less than humans because yeah. that's the disconnect isn't it yeah. that's how you process this this is how we do terrible things when we bomb countries yeah. we dehumanise people have the people who ran the concentration camps and put people on trains you Yeah, no, but it's, it's, it, it does segue back to the earlier conversation about the person who's 
prepared to pipe up and say, at the risk of causing offence and at the risk of causing outrage and at the risk of not doing what society is doing. You know, when you do these kind of humane acts, there is part of it which is about you're doing it also for yourself. We aren't very capable of taking care of ourselves. And so in a way you switch that and you take care of other people and you become empathetic and you try to help. And the older I've got, the more I've realised that actually, you know, I need to look after myself mm. as well because mm. in other ways you burn yourself out which is yeah. what you do if you do a lot of community yeah. work or you do a lot of work in orphanages or all the stuff that I've done I mean my therapist always uses the analogy of like you have to have the oxygen mask on yourself first yes a lot of it is, is about age when you're young you have a naivety or this desire to heal the world or Some to people. do things and all of the things that I've done which people always go oh my god you're so lovely you did this you did that I think no I was a real depressive person having my life put into some context realizing how fucking lucky I am yeah. it enabled me to reconsider my life I could go to these places I could do something but I, I also benefited hugely yeah. from everything I've done and when people say oh you help what you give you get back three times it's true we move from Romania to can we talk about the capital punishment issue now? Yes, yeah. Well, about the same time that I started going to Romania, I picked up a big issue, and at the back of it, it had a little advert for human rights. It said, could you befriend someone on death row? Could you become a pen pal to someone who maybe did not have family or friends? And I thought, yeah, I could. Again, I came to this, like a lot of people, thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to write to a mass murderer. When I was growing up, I was always fascinated with mass murderers. I'd read all Dennis Nilsson, Moore's murderers books. I had a fascination. I wanted to know, but how could you do that? What makes you do that? So they give you a name, you write a letter, and two weeks later, I got this letter back. It was on my mantelpiece for about three days, and just thought, oh, my God, what have I done? I've got this letter from someone this on was death Lewis. row. Ramirez. Yes. Eventually, I thought, right, I'll open this letter. And this guy had said, oh, hi, thank you very much for Was writing. he at random that you got yes, him? Yes, it right. was totally. Yeah. It's pre-computers. Now yeah, I think it's yeah. weird because you can go you online. Can, you and, can date one. <laughs> yes. I love the fact that it was fate. And I got this letter and I always remember it because he said, I, I see you do mosaics. I've done some mosaics. What nippers do you use? I'm including a photo of some mosaics you might like. And it was so like, Mental. the thing that hits you in the face is humanity. Whatever preconceived ideas you've got about, oh, death row, mass murderers, all of that. And we all have it because the cinema and the media has made us all think like that you suddenly get this letter and it's a human being who's yeah. just talking about the everyday for five years i had an incredibly intense relationship with lewis he was a fantastic writer he'd won awards for his poems and writing and he became like my best mate and i would write to him and i would say i feel really bad i'm writing to you about my boyfriend or about my weight I'm writing to you with my complaints and yet you're sitting in a cell waiting to die and he wrote back and he'd say look carrie when I write to you, you give me my humanity back because when I write to you, I can counsel you. I can be the person that I was when I was outside of this cell. And so it was a beautiful relationship. 
after five years, you get that letter that you don't want that says he's going to be executed. And I looked into all his case. And, and trust me, I know everyone says, oh, they're innocent. But he was 70 miles away when this crime happened. He couldn't have done the crime. And then he was done for contract killing. They say he paid. But there is no evidence, nothing. There was a drug addict who was paid $500 to say that he'd heard he'd done it. I mean, there was nothing. And suddenly, I find myself in Texas at death row with this guy visiting him for the last two days of his life. And it was just overwhelming for me because I was brought up to believe in black and white law and order. These things are pillars of our society. Justice or mercy. Yeah, you know, you believe in these things. And I think most people do. If you don't have any experience of the criminal justice system, you believe in a way that it works. When it becomes personal and when you have something and it's your friend and you look into it, you realise that it's completely arbitrary it's a joke it doesn't exist and so when they executed Lewis they didn't just murder my friend my whole kind of world order collapsed at that time because I felt so helpless there was nothing I could have done and so when I came back I just decided right I'm going to mosaic the back of my wall in memory for Lewis and I think that was the time when you could say craftivism. That was when it became activism. That's when I became politicised. But that's also when I became most, most prolific as an artist. Rather than it being about my ego, it was about a desire to make something that would be a memorial, for, a fitting memorial for my friend. Yeah. And so I did. I threw myself completely into making Lewis's Wall. And for a good 10 years of my life, I did nothing but try to campaign against the death penalty. Um, you had a quote which was those with no capital get punished. That's what Lewis taught me. Capital punishment means those with no capital get punished. And then I became friends with the guy in the cell next to Lewis because Ash. his wife's twin sister was also pen pal to Lewis. Ash started to write to me and then his wife asked me to bear witness to his execution. So suddenly, two years later, I'm in Texas again, but this time I have to witness someone be executed. So you went to visit Lewis, which you didn't go to his execution. I lived in Texas, which is the poster child for capital punishment, if you want to call it that, and and, and a very bizarre place and racist and gunny and all those sorts of things. When Ash started writing to you, you know, five years of knowing him, then Lewis died, then another friend of Lewis's, I guess, you, you, you can't turn him away. Were you coping with this? Were you able to understand I'm now this person or was it like, I can't do it again? No, because listen, after Lewis died, I decided to try and set up a big art show about death row. I wrote to all these other people on death row asking them for their art because I I knew that Uh. they were artists. And then one guy was a schizophrenic and he wrote back to me saying, oh, out of the blue came you. Tell me about yourself. And I realised you can't just send a letter into death row and ask for their art. You're engaged in a yeah. relationship. So I was actually writing to five people on death row. But and you had to write this in handwriting and put it into an envelope yes. and put a stamp on it. It's and now send different. It away. Now they have a mail system. Yeah. It's all very different since it's all become computerised. But yeah, I mean, I used to eat, sleep and breathe death row. I mean, I'd watched every film, I'd watched every play because I am compulsive, obsessive. I was, you know, there wasn't anything I didn't know about the facts and figures. I used to go around and give lectures. The next thing, I'm being invited to be at Ash's execution. The strange thing is, is that I'd been just awarded a commission to mosaic a car 
Patiki love truck that was going to have hula hula girls handing out messages of love. It was the first ever art car parade in Manchester. There'll be a photograph of the hula hula tiki truck on the blurb for the podcast, which is amazing. And so, um, yeah, so Walk the Plank, an amazing organisation, gave me a commission. I was going to mosaic this taxi. I found out just after I started to make this taxi that I was being asked to go and be at this execution. And so it's what you do I'm sitting there and I thought we're going to make this uh, tiki love truck in honour of Ash we'll have to combine the two was there um, any question of Ash's guilt or innocence or Ash again always said he was innocent the person was supposed to have been a very tall Arab and he's a very short Mexican guy and his own lawyer took out a mortgage to try and raise the money to have various tests done and things I mean it's another one where Clive Safford Smith, who's a leading lawyer that deals with uh, death row, I interviewed him and he said that if you're in Texas on death row, you're 94% dead. Yeah, yeah. Only 6% will ever get off. So you go over... That just before that, I was on a boat that was going up and down the River Thames and it was the last day that Tony Blair was in office. And so this band that we know called Sick Note decided to hire out a boat and try and like reenact the Sex Pistols and go up and down. Outside Parliament. Yeah. And Alabama Free were there too, the band. And my friend Nick, who's the harmonica player in Alabama Free, was there. He's also an expert in death masks. So he knew when he was on this boat and he said, I hear you're going to Texas. He said, is there any chance I could do a death mask? And I was like, well, you probably could because I know the family. So I contacted them and said, look, you know, when I come over, how would you feel about us doing a death mask? Death row is full of like, people are so paranoid. There's no trust. But because I'd been there, because they'd seen I'd done that Wolf and Lewis, they knew I was an artist. His wife said yes. And Ash said yes. And so... I flew into Texas, then Nick flew into Texas. It was so mad because when we got there, they didn't realise that a death mask is done after you're dead. Linda was like, so have we got permission? We're like, no. And she's like, where are we going to do it? We could do it in the back of a car. And you're like, you can't do a death mask in a moving car. You know, it was nuts. I mean, it was completely nuts. Legally, Texas is the only state. If you have your body bag, you can transport a body. You can take it from one walk to another. When we discovered this, we went and bought a body bag. Within five minutes of him being executed... Was he lethal injection? It's lethal injection. Within five minutes, he was in the back of a hire car and he was driven to a cabin in some woods that we'd hired out. And we took a door off and put, laid it across two camp beds and we carried him in there and we put him on there and we did his death mask. It's so unusual. When someone dies, there's an autopsy. There's some procedure. When they murder them at Huntsville... They give you a certificate that says homicide on it straight away and they give you a body. When we took him, he was still warm. And when you look at the death mask, you you think he has stubble, but it didn't. It was goosebumps. His skin reacted to the coldness of the plaster. It's like bizarre. It's ritualistic. Also, you have to remember that Texas is a non-contact prison. So when Ash went in for 12 years, no one had touched that man except prison guards. No one. That's why when you see all those classic photos, it's an arm against an arm on a glass. That's as close as you get. It's kind of unexplainable. And so we What was watching it like? Oh, I mean, you know that expression when they say your knees go? I've had that twice in my life. Once when I was walking over a bridge in Costa Rica to do a bungee jump. 
for months when I was walking into to like the Green Mile. Is it like the movies you're looking through glass? And... Yes, it is. And I thought we'd be sitting down with this glass, but actually it's a very small confined space and you're all pushed in and you're next to each other. And behind you is all the press. And so there were five witnesses for him. And in another room is the people who are watching it, who's the victim's family. But I was there holding the hand of his wife all I can really remember is her wiping away the condensation on the glass so she could continue to make eye contact with him. Was he sedated? Well, he's strapped down on a gurney. Oh, do you think he was sedated before he walked no, into the room? No, no. And the thing is, is, prior to that, we'd been walked into this room that was like something from Dukes of Hazard, like some really old 70s office. We were told now is the time, so we get up and we walk and we walked and you kind of have to hold yourself. You have to go, right, this is it. I'm going to do this. You know, I'm going to get every bit of strength I can and I'm, I'm going to muster it and I'm going to do this. So they walk you into this room and you sit down and then nothing happened for 27 minutes. They held us in a room. No one spoke. I was like, what's going on? Why are we here? And I, and I spoke to them. We don't know. We don't know. And apparently we found out afterwards they were looking for a vein. But all that time you're in disbelief. You're thinking maybe he'll get a reprieve because people get reprieved. Mm. People get reprieved after they've been executed. But then after like 27 minutes of just sitting in this weird office, we would, nope, right, that's it. And you walk into a room and he's just tied to a gurney. And, you know, people say that it's quick and it's painless. Well, it's not. It took him seven and a half minutes to die. That's like listening to two records. You listen to two records and think that's how long it takes that person to die. You in know. great pain? It's hard to know whether they're in pain, but they are moving, yeah, jerking, jerking against spasms, something. Yeah. I know it's not quick and I doubt it's painless. You know? And sometimes they completely botch it. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I think like the same when I was assorted that you kind of have out-of-body experiences when things are happening that are so traumatic. There is a way that your body or your mind copes and that is to kind of almost take yourself out of that space in a lot of ways it was a blur and the thing is is that when most people go see an execution they go see an execution and that's it you walk away but for us we saw the execution and then it's like shit we've got something to do now as soon as that execution was finished we were running down the road we were going to a mall we were picking up a body we were putting it in the car we were driving for about half an hour now it may be legal to transport dead bodies it's not legal to take them out and put them in a cabin and do death masks on them <laughs> you've got all this adrenaline kicking in you're trying to do this thing the family was there we were all there we went in we made this death mask it's incredibly hot in the middle of this like weird camping site and then we have to put him back into a car and then we have to drive across state for four hours to deliver him to another place and part of the time we were in a two-car convoy where the car in front was pulled over for speeding and we're thinking like do you know what i mean we got this dead body in the bag it was a mad experience it was like the weirdest road trip in only a, in texas but in a sense it's what saved it you know when we look yeah. back at that experience it was like we got one over on the authorities yeah. before they execute someone you have one hour to talk on the phone Ash was on the phone and he said, oh my God, when Carrie came to see me and I saw her cry, I saw her break down, I saw humanity in her eyes. He said, I can't believe you came all this way for me for a death mask, man. That's usually bestowed on kings. He said, now I know I ain't trash. Now I know I'm somebody. Mm. It took on a whole life force of its own. We really believed in what we were doing. We went there, we got the death mask, we came back. 
within one week that death mask was on the top of the tiki love truck and we went through the streets of manchester with forty-five thousand people cheering that's like a deity we cast a spell it's like magic and you have to believe in all that because that's what carries you through that process i was always worried because of my mental health and because of the way that i am and i'm an extremely sensitive person that somehow I would it, it would disturb me but in some way it didn't because the art aspect the same way when I used to I was a self-harmer and I made art out of it the same yeah. way when I went to Romania and we made an artistic response the same way with death row making an artistic response it saves you I've always known that I've always known that the people in death row who write and they paint that creativity is what gives us our sanity and our humanity. My whole life journey has presented it time and time again to me. Mm. My mission and Nick's mission was to give Ash a life beyond death, was to try and use him as an example to try and let people know about the injustice of the death penalty. And for like seven years, we used to drive that truck around Glastonbury. The Mutoid Wastes used to have it in all their shows. We've taken it to Blackpool to their illuminated light show. We've Mm -hmm. been to Edinburgh for New Year's Eve. We just used to drive it around and people will come up to you and they'll say, oh my God, what's that? And you'll be able to tell them. And when you tell the story, like I've told you, it humanizes it. It opens up a dialect rather than people going, oh, you know, kill them. You know, in 2014, that that went into the Victorian Albert Museum. It yeah. was one of the star exhibits for disobedient objects, how one can out-design authority. Over 400,000 people went to that show, and it's kind of amazing. You know, you do things, you don't really know what you're doing, but that's the beauty of art. It's the beauty mm. of writing a song or making a, a mosaic or any creative pursuit. It has its own life force, and then you, you put it out to the world, and, and amazing things happen Did from you that. get much outrage for doing it? No, because it's a bit like my house. I think that when you do things through the conduit of art and craft in particular, it neutralises things. That's the beauty of art and the beauty of craft and the beauty of music because Mm. I think they're levellers. People, you know, the working class don't like them, the rich don't like the poor, or, you know, you have all these tribes. But the thing that we all can agree on is, oh, we all love this music, or we all love that that's why, you know, I love that quote, beware artists, they mix with all levels of society and are therefore the most dangerous. But mm. that's why they try to control culture, because in a sense, it's that one part where we can all be, say, at a rock festival and dancing to a record. And it doesn't really matter what your background is, because it unifies us all in that moment. I remember years ago, I was doing a Myers-Briggs test, which I find kind of weirdly interesting one of the questions on it was which is better justice or mercy and you're meant to just give whatever answer you you know your mind gives you not think about it too much and it was funny i i had a very epiphany like response to that because my initial response and probably given my background was justice is always better than mercy and one of my friends danny higgins he had put down mercy and I said, why? And he went, just two words. He said, who's justice? And as soon as I heard those two words, I went, oh, fuck. Is it Hitler's justice? King Henry VIII's justice? Is it Donald Trump's justice? But mercy is just mercy. I would have said justice as well, you funnily see? enough. Well, and, but isn't mercy the right answer? Like, given even that those experiences that you go through. The death would... penalty is wrong whether they're guilty yes, that's or innocent. What I was say, yeah. I, I've written to people who yeah. did commit the crime. Yeah. There is a statistic when Bush was in charge of Texas, three out of every four people on death row in Texas were ex-military. 
Now, I wrote to five people in Texas and four of them had served in the military. And also, it's not about what colour you are, it's about who you kill. You kill a white person, you're on death row. All of these things are played out. You can see how unfair it is. Trust me, there are people who are dangerous who need to be taken out of society. But the vast majority of people on death row look into their lives and they will be tragic. Yeah. I'm going to just want to now go to where your life is going. You have three kids, Poppy, Rudy, Roxy, and you've just been appointed the first ever visual artist for Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. So talk to me about, first of all, congratulations, because that is amazing. When I interview and meet people like you, one of the things that annoys me is how institutions are afraid of people like you. And, and you're, you're starting to get... Well, I know, for an anarchist ceramicist, I've done quite well, you though have. I wouldn't even say that but about you know myself what I mean by anymore. That. All the way back to your story at the start of the podcast about, oh, don't do that because... Uh, you know, but the idea that certain sections of institutional society are able to sit down and go, you know what, we're going to give it to her. Why? Because she's brave, because she is true, she has integrity and she believes. And that's the, the criteria and ticks, tick boxes that really should, all artists should be should be given. So tell me about this new role that you have. Well, I'm actually, I'm halfway through it. I was really surprised when they did give it to me. I'm right. actually, I'm still always surprised when I get these kind of prestigious jobs. I mean, for me, it was a huge honour, especially because when I went in the interview, I told them I don't know anything about Shakespeare. If I'm <laughs> honest, I studied two plays, O-level and yeah. A-level, but I can't watch it. I it just, you know, it's impenetrable. I'm with you on that, yeah. And I think they liked my honesty. They gave me the job, so I have to spend a period of time up in Stratford-upon-Avon go to all the places they've given me totally free range to do whatever I like it's empowering for me to go there and be part of this process because I'm I'm an individual like I said I suffer from insecurities myself Mm. to go there and to to be listened to and to have like these world authorities talk to me it's kind of an amazing position to be Mm. in Funnily enough, last Monday, I had to present halfway through my findings to the trustees of Shakespeare's Birthplace Trust. And I had to go and present and I showed them all these plates that I'd done. And that's where a lot of my body of my work has come from, is from the very idea that you have Shakespeare. Everyone knows who Shakespeare is. Everyone has an opinion of Shakespeare. His wife is just being reduced to a cottage. She's not <laughs> referred to as Miss Shakespeare, yeah, you know, as yeah. Mrs. Shakespeare. What I've done with my residency is to think, well, it's Year of the Woman. Mm-hmm. We have enough about history. Why don't we have her story? Great. And so a large part of my work is looking at the women. A lot of it's based on Jermaine Greer, who's given a feminist interpretation of Anne Hathaway. Looking at that, but looking at all the alternatives, because what I like to do is I'm, I'm a bit like an investigator. I go mm-hmm. there not knowing anything, look at this, look at that, compare it and think, well, what's interesting to me? Well, what's interesting to me is how I believe history is a lie agreed upon. Good line. Mm. Well, it is. And it's like history, his story, whose story. Usually his. Of course, that's why it's called his story. (laughs) And it's an agenda. And the most amazing thing about Shakespeare is that really we know nothing. We don't really even know if Shakespeare wrote the plays. That's That's not a topic they want me to cover. But (laughs) the fact is, is that... When people write or talk about Shakespeare, they just project their own agenda. Mm. Some people want him to be this bisexual who, mm. who ran off and did this. Some people want him to be a collective of people. 
Jermaine Greer wants it to be about all the women. But mm. that's the point. When you don't have real information, you go and look for the things that back up your argument. Yeah. And so for me, I'm kind of going in there blank and thinking, well, rather than try and make commentary on it, I'm making commentary on the fact of how history is dictated, how these things are passed down mm. throughout history. Anne Hathaway is this woman of contempt. You know, if you really do read about her, most scholars say that she's ugly. There's no photo of her, so how can you say that? She's the older woman who got this young guy, had his babies, you know, and he ran away because he couldn't bear to be with her. This is a woman who lived during the play who had three children, who kept the home going. If Shakespeare hated his wife, he still went back there, if you follow the narrative that we were led to believe. He Mm. chose to go back there. She was living with his parents, so I'm interested in how how history is taught because when I did the stuff on the Victorian Albert Museum, I got to do the uh, ceramic intervention on the front, and one of the things that I wrote was history as a weapon, and it is yeah. because it's like whose history. They always say it's the winner, the person who wins it takes the history, and so I'm trying to visually reimagine Anne Hathaway. Some things are really interesting, like their, their daughter Susanna. There's something called the Bawdy Court. People were taken to the courts all the time. It was all tied up in litigation in Tudor time. Shakespeare's daughter was taken to Bawdy Court and charged with giving a man syphilis, not her husband. It was never proven, and it may well have just been a charge because they used to just charge you with things to tie you up in litigation. But when you start thinking about, well, these women all had babies before marriage. They've all been charged with, you know, having VD. When you start having these information, I think you start to look at them differently Mm. rather than these dowdy Protestant women that were just... I I could even throw in my own life. I'm not going to cover myself in any glory here, but like the, the upbringing that I had in the 70s and 80s, things like the idea that women enjoy sex, something as simple as that, was not a thing for me. It was like it was almost transactional and it was... You hear it in, in Apologists for Rape. You know, the, the, the whole, oh, what were you wearing when you got raped? You know, this whole idea that, that oh, well, if you were wearing a short skirt, well, what do you expect? A man well, listen, just when jumping? I was attacked, when I was attacked, I had the police interview me for eight hours saying, well... Do you always walk around late at night? I know that experience really well. The reality is, is we still have hundreds of girls being abused or, you know, in care homes. These things are real. Mm. Your work is, I'm looking at a poster here, a piece of art on your wall, is risque, gives me a carry-on feel. It's cheeky. Lots of people are going to tut-tut it. It's very cultural. It's from another era. It's a lot of, you do a lot of work with porn from the 70s. And please do go and buy some of her work because she's sat here today talking about all her stories, but she does have a, uh, a, a job and a tax bill <laughs> to cover. So um, tell me about what the future looks like now for you in, in your, having had all of that amazing journey. Well, the thing for me is that I grew up with a father that was really into porn and right. very autistically open about it Mm -hmm. and so for me I'm using all this stuff because I grew up with it there's part of me that likes it and loves it and my reference to porn comes out of being a child and having seen it and I remember that when I was exposed to it the thing that always stuck with me was the cartoons again there's that disconnect I must have seen it as a child omitted all the really bad stuff and just looked at the cartoons and I have a kind of a mixed response to it because part of me loves it 
all the imagery I use, I usually use because there is something that appeals to me on, yeah. a, on a purely artistic, aesthetic level. I think, oh, that's lovely. And then I try to subvert it. And then I try to put things onto it. And I'm interested in the labels that women have. I mean, a lot of my work really is, is humorous. It's funny. Yeah, it's it a is. response. It's not meant to be taken too yeah. seriously. Like, it's been on social media and I've had loads of criticisms. And it's like, you've obviously, do you not know yeah. irony? They don't get the irony and they the kind of the, saucy kind of, you're a, trying to poke certain people with a stick and they're reacting, which is exactly what you want. And, I, and, and other people are finding it funny. Yeah, I mean, a, a large percentage of people do, but obviously some people are offended. But yeah. I, like I said, would defend my right to offend. Yeah, you know what that's I mean? good. I was brought up in a world where you were never allowed to swear. My dad never said the F word really? ever in his wow. life. We Mine neither. Yeah. We weren't allowed to swear. Yeah. It was the worst thing you could do. My sister. I'm still well able to not swear. When I, when I go out with my sister, she says, well, do you have to swear? You know, yeah. it's like, yes, I love fucking swearing. Yeah. I love swearing. I yeah. love saying and the word cunt. you're allowed in this podcast. We're can't, 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 <laughs> I love it because I know you're not supposed yeah. to. I think when you're an artist, there's something that remains childlike about you. Yeah. And I think that that's where I am. I'm there still that naughty child that wants to say things you can't say because what's so bad about saying I know, it's just a word. What's bad is what's happening in the world. Words are words. Imagery is imagery. I'm trying to push certain buttons or make people think twice about things. So, before we finish, what would you say to the young you now, if you could go back and whisper oh, in her ear? No, I know you? it's a hypothetical, I but I, I'm very intrigued by this question. What would I say to the young... Um, I would say that you turned out all right. Brilliant. That is a great way to leave it. Thank you very much for being on a pint with Shawnee B. Carrie Wright Court. Thank the opportunity I love your story we, someone needs to make a movie out of this maybe I will please go on to Carrie's uh, website that you'll find at the end of the podcast and purchase some of her unique and original and fantastic art best of luck in the future thank you thank you, you.